Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and we've got an action-packed episode tonight. There's so much going on meteorologically, and we've got a lot to cover. Um, Some deployments are happening, and we're going to talk about that too. Um, And just really wet, wet and flooding and lots of things going on. Um, and that includes out in Colorado where Sam is. So, Sam, are you are you floating away out there? Well, fortunately, I live on the second floor. But uh, the place that I live in did take some water damage, and I'm going to talk about that in a bit. But um, unfortunately, our meteorologists can't be here tonight. But they did give us some good information. Um, St. Louis, the home of IDMC, has had a lot of flooding both Tuesday and Wednesday. So I need to catch up with that. And Kentucky is what we're really talking about. It took a big hit. I mean, when you look at the pictures, it's all the way up past the roof lines. So that's where Dr. Joe comes in, and we're going to talk about that too. Um, But what they told us, oh joy, Colorado could have flooding in the next few days. Much of the Four Corners region is stuck under a stagnant monsoon pattern with recurring thunderstorms every day, especially dangerous for those in areas with complex terrain, canyons, etc. This is the favorite time of year for significant dangerous flooding in Colorado. And they actually gave us a bit of a list of some of the bad, worst floods we had. One in 1976 killed like 118 people, but it was up in the mountains, I think. So... Uh, Midsummer is a dangerous time for Colorado. In fact, um, a part of this conversation I hadn't anticipated was when I talked to some of my people, there was actually a, a, a funnel cloud touching down not too far from here and another one on Monday. So that's kind of scary, and it's the closest we've been to that. And like I said, I think we're ill-prepared, so we're going to talk about that a bit later. Hi, Dr. Joe. Hi, everybody. How are you doing? He's got a bit of a cold, so he sounds a little funny. I'm a little scratchy sounding, for sure. A little scratchy. But what are you going to be doing, Dr. Joe? Well, the uh, FEMA has some teams uh, en route today to the flooding in Kentucky, mostly water rescue and water search-based entities. Um, So we'll have some on-site presence there uh, in the very near future. All those teams are en route tonight, so uh, they'll be there and going to work, I'm sure, by later tonight, first thing in the morning, doing some wide area searches. I think there's uh, a lot of territory to cover based on the intel that I've seen from uh, the state of Kentucky and FEMA. A lot of pretty broad areas of flooding, much of it small communities and rural areas. And so uh, difficult to, uh, one, get access to have a good sense of uh, how many people might be missing and uh, also trying to keep up with the number of folks that uh, may be trapped in their homes and unable to get out. Yeah, that's the scary part. I heard there were two confirmed deaths and a number of people missing, but um, the Weather Channel had a pretty sad video of this lady going, you know, we've called 911, we've called everybody, and there's my, you know, my people are trapped in the house and we can't get to them. And, you know, I guess that's pretty typical of these situations, but, you know, nobody saw this coming, certainly not in the... uh, in the form that it 
I don't know. I can't remember. The, do you know that what the rainfall amounts were, Joe? Yeah, more than nine inches of rain in 24 hours. Yeah, but it seemed like more than that. I guess if you're in a flood zone, it will all go into one place, which it looks like it had to because this was at roof level. So you'll find a lot of people sitting on roofs and uh, trying to get out. And they'll have been there for a while by the time you get to them. So given that, uh, what kind of issues do you think you see? I know really nothing about the heat down there or anything. But, you know, what do you expect to see, Joe? Well, obviously the heat is going to play a huge factor. Uh, it is stiflingly, if that's a word, um, hot and humid. So, uh, you know, heat illness uh, is going to be a big deal, especially for folks that are trapped inside structures, for example, their attic or something like that. Uh, that's going to be a huge uh, problem. Um, shelter is going to be difficult to find. Uh, power is going to be out, so no air conditioning and that sort of stuff. Uh, I'm sure we'll see issues related to uh, just exposure in general, whether that's uh, water, you know, rain, weather, heat, uh, as well as any hazards that may be there from uh, chemical uh, uh, invasion into the water to live electrical lines and that sort of stuff. So lots of hazards for the folks in those areas. Well, and then, of course, there's a lack of fresh water and food. If they haven't, if they, unless they store it in their attic, um, they're probably going to be having a problem with that, too. Absolutely. So, yeah, they might be in pretty bad shape by the time you guys get to them, unfortunately. We also have Mr. Kevin Ryder with us. We haven't had Kevin for a while. He was a traveling nomad for a bit, but he settled down again. Hi, Kev. Howdy, everyone. I settled down here for another few months until my van gets here. So has, has Texas had any kind of floods lately? What's What's it been like down there? Oh, it's been, uh, I forget the last time we've had a serious rain. It's been very, very hot. Uh, hotter than normal, actually. Uh, not really a whole lot of rain. Just the, uh, the heat when it's 98 degrees at midnight and 97% uh, humidity, it's, uh, you're, you're, you're glad for air conditioning. Yeah, um, we talked last week with our friend in the UK and, and we're having that, that discussion because a lot of them don't have air conditioners because they you know, don't need them. They're on an island and they have you know breezes going through and, and they're having a terrible time over there. I hope things have, things have lightened up for them. And one of the comments Chris made was it's not cooling off at night. So, you know, if you can get some relief at night and get some decent sleep, it's not so bad. But uh, that wasn't the case, unfortunately. Thoughts, Jamie? Well, I just, you know, I, I think there's so much going on um, nationwide between the drought and the areas that are experiencing the stream, extreme heat. And then you bring in the, the monsoonal rains um, that are parked over um, parts of the Four Corners region in Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona, and then you you travel and see the line of storms that have just gone across the central um, part of the Midwest and and into the um, starting towards the Appalachians. Um, you just see all the the areas that are just getting hit. Um, St. Louis got hit by this line of storms that then moved into Kentucky, and you start getting into that hill country. And all that runoff just goes into, you know, goes into the same places 
where the runoff needs to go. And a lot of times that's roads, that's, you know, the towns are built in the valleys and that's where the water's going. So it's just been a real big problem. Joe, did any of that hit Tennessee on its way through? Uh, we did, we got some uh, localized heavy rains, but we have not had nearly the uh, issues that Kentucky's had. Fortunately. Well, Kevin, you used to do, you're sitting in, in the dry part of the country now, but you used to do a lot of water rescue kind of work. What are the things you were used to seeing? Uh, the same things that Dr. Joe mentioned earlier. Um, he, he pretty much nailed it. Well, Joe, you were talking about, and this is one thing I was thinking about today, you know, when when nasty stuff gets into the water and people are trying to get through it, and that include, that's a risk to your USAR team, too, because they're going into that water. Um, what does that cause in terms of stuff down the road as far as illnesses and, you know, aspiration pneumonia or anything like that? Well, uh, obviously being exposed to uh, water like that can lead to all kinds of things. Uh, you know, it frequently contains lots of uh, sewage runoff and uh, uh, chemical spills and all that sort of stuff from, you know, broken uh, lines and uh, pipes and that sort of thing. So it, it can cause lots of skin issues early on. We frequently see that when we're in the water a lot. Uh, and then, uh, you know, trying to sort of keep track of uh, the amount of, one, what's in the water in the first place, and then, two, how, how likely are we to have absorbed a lot of that stuff uh, during our exposure there. And then as you get, you know, abrasions and scrapes and cuts and all that that are pretty normal, you have to worry about uh, uh, infection uh, from uh, all the nasty bugs that are floating around in that water. Uh, so it's, you know, it, it, it can have both short-term and long-term consequences. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, Kevin, you had a comment just now. Yeah. So the other thing to think about is, or be mindful of is, uh, the introduction of snakes in the water that normally you wouldn't think about because they're going to get washed out from wherever. Um, so you might have some venomous snakes, not poisonous snakes, venomous snakes, uh, you, you need to watch out for as you're walking through the water. And um, and then also, um, as Dr. Joe mentioned before, with the abrasions and cuts, uh, you could see some potential uh, sepsis cases because depending on what's in the water, uh, you get a cut and they have some gasoline or some oil or waste um, being introduced into that cut. Ooh. You're not going to feel too good. You snakes, no. Jamie? <laughs> well, and, and it, you know, it, it comes back to keeping the responders in, in good condition at the same time, which is something Joe's all talked about in the past that, you know, the responsibilities he has isn't just for caring for the patients that they rescue, but keeping the team itself safe and, and in good health. And uh, of course, the Kentucky responders that are on the ground have been working for, you know, over 24 hours at this point to rescue people and probably dealing with their own beginnings of, of various um, issues, you know, health issues that could crop up with them too. Uh, and Joe, Joe, do you, I mean, I guess you guys provide care to whoever needs it, whether it's the local responders, the people you're rescuing or your own team. 
Yeah, that's absolutely correct, Jamie. We uh, we would take care of anybody that that needed assistance. That's assuming you're not in the water at the time. Uh, Joe, do your guys wear wetsuits? I mean, I'm thinking about the protection for them, but if they are in wetsuits, that's going to be desperately hot. So that creates another problem. Yeah, and, and the answer is sometimes. Uh, it depends a bit on conditions um, and, uh, you know, trying to get the right PPE for the job. So a wetsuit would be considered part of that. Um, we certainly have some uh, heavily padded uh, suits that are part of our water rescue stuff that, uh, you know, would allow us to um, be in the water, have some protection from, you know, branches and, you know, sharp objects underwater and all that sort of stuff. They're not particularly like wetsuits, um, but they uh, they do provide some, some more um, protection from uh, heavier stuff like um, uh, limbs and uh, pieces of metal and that kind of stuff that are frequently underwater. Jamie? And I don't know who who's best to answer this, Kevin or Joe, but what are some of the things, I mean, Joe, you, you know, you've, you're associated with Tennessee's USAR team, um, and that type of search and rescue is distinct, distinctly different from the type of search and rescue you'd engage in with uh, flooding situations, I would think. Um, what are some of the major differences that you run into um, when handling um, searches in, when you're looking for people when there's major flooding going on? Well, it, it varies quite a bit. You know, there there's sort of swift water rescue, which basically is water that's moving at some speed versus uh, generally flood waters, which tend not to um, not to be moving very fast, and therefore you don't have to worry about currents and all that sort of stuff. Um, the the approach is different. The hazards are different. Uh, the equipment that we use is different. Uh, the, uh, the, the search patterns are different, uh, et cetera. So there, there's quite a bit of variability in that. Um, and particularly in, uh, areas where there's a lot of natural, uh, creeks and rivers, and then those are overwhelmed by floodwaters. Uh, you know, it's awfully difficult to know what the uh, original landscape looked like. And so you can get yourself into some pretty hairy situations pretty quickly, simply because you, you don't know what's just under the surface of the water. Yeah, and keep them out of those pipes, Joe. We don't want another story like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, uh, that's not. a very hard lesson learned for sure. <laughs> Kevin, you had a, a thought. Yes, I know uh, when I was in the teams, we used uh, dry suits for water rescues. So given the heat, um, that's definitely um, going to present a higher chance of heat injuries on the rescue teams, um, just because of the nature of the work and you're you're, you're active, you're busy, uh, and the heat, and they don't breathe, so, which is why they're called dry suits. Um, the only exposed skin normally is is your neck and above, and your hands. So your entire body is in uh, basically a big rubber suit. It's not rubber, but it's waterproof. So uh, trying to, to, to sweat really just makes it even worse. Yeah, all the sweat's going to stay on the inside, so you're going to get wet anyway. Uh, Pretty much, yeah. So, Joe, do you have situations when you are treating the public and so forth and, and water victims that do you have a DMAT or some other form of uh, 
you know, medical aid station that you can send them to? Uh Sometimes, uh, you know, the DMATs usually are not in place that quickly and are unlikely to be deployed at the federal level unless there's significant and uh, long-standing uh, damage to a healthcare facility. So most of what we would be doing would be uh, extricating those folks to some kind of casualty collection point where we could turn them over to local EMS. And, and then plug them into the current EMS infrastructure and hospital infrastructure that is in place and functional in the area. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense, but how do you get them there? Uh, that that varies quite a bit. You know, that generally uh, requires a fair amount of transportation in a boat of some sort. Uh, to get them to uh, uh, some place where we can move them into a wheeled vehicle. A lot of times we'll use uh, high lift trucks and that kind of stuff uh, that can, you know, forward fairly heavy water, uh, fairly heavy depths of water uh, and transport them out to an area where uh, the roadways are safe and passable for normal transportation. Um, and then connect there with uh, ground EMS resources from uh, the area, or we can also utilize uh, helicopters. So I know the National Guard is pretty heavily engaged um, in that area and has quite a few helicopters at work already. So uh, it would not be uncommon for us to be evacuating patients via helicopter. Yeah, and I can imagine there's been some people on the roofs, but hopefully they've been taken care of by now. So Jamie, question. Joe, I know we've touched on this on past episodes, but could you talk a little bit about um, the challenges that you see sometimes running into that coordination that is required between federal resources and state and local resources, um, where you first get on scene and are trying to make that assessment of where you're needed um, and, and how to keep that communication line open? Sure, that's a great question, Jamie. You know, our, our primary function is to go there in uh, in response and in support of the local resources. Um, we do not uh, tend to take those situations over. Uh, so usually what will happen is when we first arrive, we will connect with uh, the local emergency management agency or, you know, whatever jurisdiction is in charge of the uh, rescue efforts at the time and integrate ourselves into their system. Uh, in in some cases, um, our um, more robust communication system and that sort of stuff can be beneficial to the locals. And so we we can take on a larger role if we need to. Um, but the uh, uh, you know if, if their system infrastructure is in pretty good shape, then we would. Uh, simply make certain that they understood the capabilities that we bring to bear and uh, our suggestions on where we could be of the most benefit to them, is particularly in situations where uh, it's likely to exceed their capabilities, equipment, training, et cetera, and would, would suggest that they send us into those areas to take care of that while they concentrate uh, their, their uh, resources elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we always have to remember that the disaster is still owned by the locals, even though everybody 
others can get in there and help. And you're right about the DMATs too. Um, fortunately, the USARs can get there faster, which is what we want to do. Um, I had a question and I totally forgot what it was. But I do have a, a situation that came up today. Um, and I imagine it's not something unique to where I live. I live in an active senior community that's a three-level uh, facility. Uh, it, it's only been there for six years, so it's fairly new. Um, last night was a storm like most of us have never seen. Uh, you know, you, the thunder was one after another, after another, after another, and the lightning was the same way to the extent that it was blinding if you tried to look out the window. Um, that was pretty scary. And at that moment in time, it didn't happen where I'm house sitting at the other end of town, but it was a monsoon, literally. I mean, they must have gotten three inches of rain in, in 15 or 20 minutes. In fact, they even got a little bit of hail. Um, at five o'clock this morning, the alarm went off and it was so loud. I mean, if you walked into the hallway you'd have to hold your hands over your ears. So it's five o'clock in the morning. You've got all these old people. A lot of them are new. They've never even experienced a fire alarm before. And they're standing in the hallway and, and going, what do I do? What do I do? Um, in our particular wing, there's my myself and a gal who's a nurse. She's also done disaster work. And we jump into the roles that we know we need to do, which is get everybody out of there. And that's what she did. The problem with that, what, they didn't know what kind of alarm it was. They didn't sense it was a fire, but it was an everybody out kind of thing. But here we're taking these people in their PJs outside into a storm with major lightning and cold and wet you know, I was just floored by that going, and of course, there's no management around at that hour, um, which is the wrong thing. I mean, you know, nobody really knew what the alarm was. I, I, I came back to figure out it was probably a water flow because what did happen is they had some pipes that weren't clearing the water and it flooded out our pub, God forbid, and, you know, some of the first floor lobby and so it probably came into the fire department as a water flow because there was no fire, but they did show up, but there wasn't much they could do about it. Um, so I realized we need to do some training with the management and with the residents, but I don't know, I, you know, we, uh, you know, she and I started talking and it's like, well, what if there's a tornado? How are we going to know? I mean, you and I, you know, she, she and I carry multiple you know, apps for weather. So we'd certainly know we could run around knocking on doors, but not everybody does. And nobody's probably watching the weather at five o'clock in the morning or in the middle of the night. Um, but we have no idea what a tornado alert would sound like if there even is one. And if there is one, where do we go? There is no tornado place to go in the facility. So people are on their own in their own apartments. And nobody probably knows that. Um, thoughts, Joe? <laughs> well, I, you clearly have hit on a you know a very important issue, and that is to uh, more clearly define the response to the various types of alarms. And 
uh, particularly to have a different type alarm for a different situation so that people understand what to do. And uh, that may be as easy as, you know, a laminated placard on the wall that says, you know, three long beeps means you go outside and one long and one short means you go to the top floor and, you know, whatever. Uh, but it certainly sounds right for uh, an opportunity to at least put some information out there for your fellow residents uh, and for responders, the fire department or whoever, to uh, understand what they should expect when they arrive if, you know, XYZ kind of alarm has gone off. Yeah, absolutely. And the last thing I want them to do is go outside in a serious lightning storm. Kevin, then we'll go to Jamie. Yeah, so we used to have, uh, let's see, usually twice a year, but we, we had a uh, an assisted living facility and a retirement home where I was back in, uh, in the Northeast. And twice a year, we would have a coordinated rehearsal. We would have police, fire, and EMS, building management, and all the staff on hand, and we would simulate this is what happens if. And it would usually take about an hour, an hour and a half, and then we uh, we brought pizza for everybody, and they loved it. But we we talked about you know the different scenarios of what could happen, and then what to do or what to expect when that did happen. And uh, we did have a, a major flood. Uh, the one facility uh, was lucky because they were higher up, uh, kind of on a mountain, so they weren't affected by that. But the other place was, and uh, that planning worked out great because we were able to evacuate um, half of the building that needed to be evacuated in probably about 20 minutes. So it, it worked out phenomenal. Well, and so the benefit of that can... is, you know, the, the people know what to do and where to go. Uh, we're not set up for any other kind of alarm. So they hear an alarm, they think it's a fire and they go outside. That's not always gonna, and what if there's a tornado out there? You know, that's right. not going to be the best option. Jamie? Well, I was gonna say, this is my, this is, really, I think, a situation that is a great opportunity to coordinate with whoever the local fire department um, training officer, the chief, um, you know, talk to them about exactly what happened, explain the situation to them, and point out to them that there's an opportunity here for them to be better prepared along with the, the residents being better prepared, just like Kevin said, um, we, we have a, a, it's not assisted living, it's um, a senior housing um, apartments in the center of town. And um, that's a once a year we go in there and go door to door handing out information on, you know, what to do in an emergency situation. Um, you know, what, where, the, where the fire department is coming from and what, where to coordinate, where to meet, um, where the evacuation um, center would be for them, and it happens to be the the, the library across the parking lot. So um, the county library is right there. Um, so if there is a place, because these people, if if, it, if there's a fire in the middle of December, or January, uh, they can't just stand out in the cold in the parking lot. There needs to be somewhere to take to take them. Um, and you know when that when that type of thing happens, and we've got to be able to get them to a, a place of safety. So I think this is an opportunity, really, that you've identified here, Sam, that, that could provide for um, a really good planning and operational um, training opportunity, not just for the local responders, but also for the residents there as well. Absolutely. And we can certainly educate the residents, but I, I don't 
I mean, the only drill we've ever had is a fire drill. He goes off, we go outside, we go back in. Fire department doesn't come. There's no interaction with other agencies. So I agree with Kevin. There, there needs to be a, a larger element here so everybody knows what to expect. Kev, you want to add to that? Sure, if I can find the mute button. Um, yeah, that, that's definitely something I, I would either bring up to management at the facility or even pose to either local law enforcement or the local fire department to have a coordinated training to get everybody on board and plan these things out, how it's going to be presented. Like I said, we did it twice a year. We spent an hour and a half. We went, conducted a full tour. Um, we, we were extremely thorough and that paid multiple dividends throughout the year. Um, just in our normal response anyway, um, just in case they had done any renovations to the building, we were updated on that. We knew where the elevators were. We knew which doors we can get the stretcher through. Um, so being familiar from the responder standpoint to that facility will definitely come in handy later on. Well, you know, elevators is another issue, too, because there's, you know, when the alarm goes off, regardless of why, they shut down. And there's a lot of people that are going to have a hard time even getting down there. So it's, this has just got my mind spinning on all the what ifs. And, you know, the, the facility is owned by a larger corporation that has several of these in, in different cities. And, you know, a lot of this should come from them. They, they should have a process and a procedure and education and communication on this. So that's where we, we may end up going. So I've got yet another mission on my plate, but this is an important one. So we have to wind it up. I know Dr. Joe's got to get ready to get on the road again. And Kev, you, thanks for your enlightened comments. We appreciate that. I don't know, Jamie, what's next? <laughs> Well, I, I think this has just been a good discussion, and we're talking about you know what's going on currently and um, the current responses going on, and also really talking about the importance of, of um, responders knowing their communities and the, the buildings and various uh, structures and places in their communities. Um, that's an important piece of the puzzle when major events happen. And it also talks a little, I think we touched on community resilience and, and how the residents and people of a community um, have a responsibility to, to have that awareness as well. And, and I think, a, you know, an important lesson was learned through, you know, the alarm that went off at your community, Sam. So I think there's a lot to learn there. Um, Joe, you know, this, this kind of training is, is something that I'm sure a lot of communities do. And, you know, when you talk about major events and, and situations that happen involving um, senior living and senior situations um, in the community, that can cause a whole set of um, medical issues that would be great training opportunities. Oh, no question about it. And, uh, you know, I, I think Sam touched on an incredibly important uh uh, area of uh, of need uh, in communities like that that uh, are likely to need uh, some very basic training, but very important at the same time. For Paragon, Joe, where can folks find out more about the customized training that you all provide that that are you can work with people's budgets, you can work with their situations, their specific needs, and really bring them something that's very unique to what would be normal cookie cutter training programs out there. 
Sure, we love to customize training for our customers, and uh, we'd ask folks to reach out to us at paragonmedicalgroup.com or on Facebook at Paragon Medical Group, or they can always reach us through the Disaster Podcast uh, or the Disaster Podcast Facebook page. And um, Joe, be safe this uh, coming weekend and throughout your deployment. Um, you know, I know you you strive to do that, but there's a lot going on over there. That there is. Thanks, guys. I'll keep you posted. And Kevin, where can folks find out more about what you're up to? Uh, so folks can go to thebrokennomad.com, and I have links to all the socials and everything else from there. I have a YouTube channel and so forth. Um, but that's the best place to go to keep up on the, the local happenings and goings-ons. And uh, other than that, um, uh, staying here, here in Texas, staying cool. And Joe, uh, be safe when you get out there. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Um, Sam, how about you? Well, usual social media places under Sam Bradley, Sam Bradley 11, uh, in our Facebook community, which we were fortunate to have uh, one of our folks join us last week and and hope that will continue to be the case. Um, And certainly in the disasterpodcast.com website. Jamie? Well, you can find me under the handle Podmedic in most social media locations, so please friend or follow me on those uh, sites. Um, I'd also like to reiterate what Sam just said. You know, we've got a whole community of you all out there that listen to the show, that catch us on the uh, Facebook group. Um, and, and I'd urge you to uh, let us know when there's something going on in your community or something that came up on your radar, whether it's sharing a link to a news item on the Facebook group or reaching out to us with an idea for an episode uh, where you might be a featured guest or someone you know might be willing to be a featured guest. Um, this is a community effort, folks. We're all bringing our own expertise to the table, and you could be a valuable link to someone else's um, problem chain out there. You know, you, you come up with a solution that could solve somebody else's problem. And, and that's always great when we are able to pull together and come up with these things. So I just urge everybody to do that and um, follow us over on the Facebook group and at disasterpodcast.com. Um, you know, Sam, lots going on this week. It's too bad our meteorologists weren't here, but um, they did give us a lot of information to get us started on this discussion. Yeah, I imagine that they're pretty busy, too, with everything going on and will continue to be the case, at least through the weekend. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just too bad that it takes a disaster or a potential disaster for you to realize you don't know everything you need to know. And there's a lot of education that needs to happen. So, Joe, stay safe. People in Kentucky, the cavalry is coming. And uh, for the rest of you, be safe, be prepared.